Okay, great. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you guys are here. We're going to start a new topic today, um, which is going to give us another look about what, what actually happened in the Garden of Eden. So, so since that's the source of uh, the entire human condition and understanding this world and, and, and all of its particulars and, and everything that went wrong, any new perspective on what happened there in terms of the spiritual uh, dynamics uh, gives us insight into our own lives and helps us focus in on, on how to be better people, basically. So, so what we're going to focus in specifically on is this, um, the whole notion of the role that the snake played in terms of understanding our, our present-day consciousness, the veils of separation that exists between our seeing God in this world and what the root cause of that is and all of the rest. So we're going to get a very kind of big picture discussion today in terms of all of these things. So let's start with the Gomorrah. Um, this is Mesech to Shabbos, Gomorrah Shabbos, Kuf Mem Hey, Amit Beis, all the way at the bottom, and it's going to go on to the next page. Um, and, and basically, it's... It's going to tell us, it's going to answer a question. We've got some distinctions about, um, or let me put it this way, um, something very beautiful about what happened at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, we know, we reached a level, those who were at Mount Sinai, um, reached a level where we were able to rectify everything that happened in the Garden of Eden. And then when the sin of the golden calf happened again, then it kind of put us back down. But there was this sort of glorious moment where everything sort of became rectified, but we weren't able to seal the deal, so to speak. We weren't able to cement in all the good um, spiritual revelation that happened there fully. So the redemption of the world didn't happen at that moment. It could have happened, could have led to it happening, you know, in a fairly... uh, exact way, but it kind of got pulled off. Nonetheless, let's focus on the positive. There was a rectification that the Gomorrah tells us right now that happened at Mount Sinai that undid what happened when the snake consorted with Chava, with Eve. And we're going to get into the particulars of what that means, consorted with Chava, okay? Um, So without further ado, it says, why... Are the Ovdei Kochavim, which is, means um, basically the servants of the stars. That's, um, that's a term that the Gomorrah uses for idol worshippers. Those who worship nature or worship gods um, other than Hashem, other than the one true God. Why are they impure? And the word that it uses is Zuhama. Why do they have the Zuhama? Now, the Zuhama is the name of that spiritual toxin that the snake put into Chava. So why do they have it and the Jewish people don't? And it says, because at the moment that the serpent, right, that's the Nachash, that's the snake in the Garden of Eden, seduced Chava, he put this level of separation, this level, this zuhama, this, this, this spiritual impurity into the world, okay? Now, now it says that the Jewish people who stood at Harsinai 
that the Zuhama was removed. Alright, so now, basically what we're going to do is, is explore what we just said. For the next, for the next, till the, till this talk is over, we're going to try to decode everything that we just said there. Okay? So now, let's, let's go back for, for a moment. We know that Adam and Chava were the, were the parents of, of all peoples, of all peoples of the world. Okay? Not just the Jewish people, everyone who's alive. There are, there are forebears. There are father and our mother. Okay. So now, let's get back to the Garden of Eden now. What happened there exactly? So the Chachamim, the sages of the Gomorrah, say something very, very fascinating. They say that when, when the snake came to Chava, she says, the snake came to me and convinced me. Okay? The word that she uses in the Torah is Hishiani. Okay? Now, this word that he convinced me, he tricked me, he seduced me, whatever it is, Hishiani, the Chachamim say, is related to another word. It shares the same root. Nesuin. Nesuin means to marry. But it means to marry in a very specific way. It's talking about the act, the marital relation act between a husband and a wife. So, so the snake lived with Chava. So, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. Now, we, we're not to understand it on that level, which you just said, we're not to understand it on that level, that it's an actual, um, literal thing, that there was a, 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 an actual physical relationship between Chava and the serpent. Now, remember, just so that you can picture what's about to play out, the snake at this point before, we, before it was cursed, before it was punished, stood on two feet. And it was called the king of the beasts. It was, it was the king. And as a sign of its stature, it was able to stand like a man stands, like a human being stands, okay? And it ate human food as well. And it was highly intelligent. And so it was really like, it was great. But it was not like man, it was the opposite of man. Now you see that in a very, very deep gematria, which is that the gematria of the word nachash, snake, is the same as Mashiach, which is the one who will bring perfection to the world, right? That emissary of Hashem that is going to bring the whole historic drama to its, its completion. So how could it be that Mashiach and Nachash could have the same gematria. And the, the reason is, is because the snake is the opposite of the human being. It stands opposite to the human being, and it's that thing which tries to undermine man. Now, we're going to get more into it in a moment. By the way, an amazing thing, when the snake is punished, it goes from having it all to basically having nothing. It now loses its arms and legs, and listen to this. It says that the Malachi Asharis, the angels from heaven, came down and cut off its arms and legs. Okay? So, so, and now instead of eating food like human beings, it's now eating dust on the ground. And now instead of this love that it desired, and we're going to get more into this in a moment, this love that it desired to, to have between himself and Chava, 
Now there's hatred between them and all the descendants of human beings and snakes. You know, to this day, it's an interesting psychological thing that people are just sort of, where most people are just innately creeped out by snakes. Like, why would that be? It's this very primal, archetypal thing that just is rooted in us, that snakes just scare us on some level, you know? So, so anyway. So what happened? What happened? Now, in order to get more deeply into this, we have to bring up another question, something that always bothered me. You know, the... The downfall of human beings, initially, or this exile that we're in, started with us eating from the tree of knowledge. The tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Eitzadas tovara. So, you can ask yourself a very big question, a very basic question. We, especially the Jewish people, love knowledge. We're all about finding out about things and asking questions and digging deeper and all the rest. So how could it be that our undoing should happen from eating from the tree of good and knowledge? In other words, that's a level of investigation that seems to be very healthy, something, what could be more Jewish than that, right? So to understand that, you have to um, put it into its broader context. And with thanks to the Rambam, he explains it in the following way. Before we ate from the tree of knowledge between good and bad. And let's just pause for a moment. You have to understand that good and bad are relative terms. The Rambam says that beforehand, everything was on the level of emet v'sheker, truth and falsehood, which is very black and white. In other words, we perceived the world in a very black and white, pure, clear way. When we ate from the tree of knowledge... It's not that it gave us knowledge. It's not that it brought us up. Because if it did, it would be back to our original question. What would be bad about that? It relativized everything. It brought everything down. Because, as you yourself know, what's good for you might be bad for something else, for someone else. What's bad for you might be good for someone else. It's all mixed up. Once you get into the terms good and bad, it becomes very subjective. And it's like you're chasing shadows. Well, what is it? Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. He says it's good. He says it's bad. I don't know. But when everything is on the level of true or false, there's no shadows. Everything is clear. All right. So that answers the question, why eating from the tree of knowledge of good and bad causes us to have a downfall, right? It answers that question. But it didn't answer my next question, and now we have an answer for the next question, okay? If we perceived the world in a black and white way beforehand, right? How could we have ever made the mistake to begin with? Do you hear the question? So now we're back to the snake, and now we're back to the zuama. And now this is going to add a whole chapter to our understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden. These don't come so often, so I'm, I'm, for me anyway, so, you know, usually we've got that narrative nailed down pretty clearly, so anytime there's a, like, a whole new chapter in it, it's big news. I'm speaking personally anyway. 
So now, what I'm telling you right now, the Maharal brings down, okay? So that's the source for this. Um, and what he says is something very, very fascinating. And now we can sort of look into ourselves also and begin to see how this affects our perception of the world. He says the following, that the snake put into Chava, and you have to also remember that when Chava was created, she was taken from Adam. So Adam and Chava, even though in the Garden of Eden at this point, are independent entities, seemingly, nonetheless, they really are linked, okay? Because they really are one flesh, even though they're in separate bodies at this point, okay? So what the Nachash, what the snake is doing to Chava, in a way he's also doing to Adam. So just keep that in mind, because they're one unit. So Chava, he desires Chava. Now I'm going to tell you why in a moment, okay? In fact, let me tell you now, because you're going to see how our, our level of sophistication in terms of our understanding this, this thought becomes much, much deeper. If you look in the Rashi and Chumash, what it brings down, and it's putting it in the most simple terms, what it brings down is the following. Why did, why did the snake do what he did? Remember, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, we brought death into the world. He wanted to kill Adam so that he could marry Chava. This is what it says. He wanted to kill Adam so that he could marry Chava. So now this is sounding like a, like a cosmic soap opera, right? Like, like, what does that mean? Like, you're giving me more information and now I understand it less well than I did a moment before because, you know, this is coming from Rashi is bringing this down. This is supposed to enlighten me. I'm now more confused. Not only that, you ready for this? When did he desire Chava? You ready for this? Because he saw Adam and Chava intimate in the marital sense. He saw them together. And when the snake saw them together, that's when his desire for Chava started. And now he's like, ah, how can I get rid of Adam? I'm going to bring death into the world that will knock off Adam, and then I'm going to have Chava for myself. Alright? So now, now whatever, now, now we understand it even less. <laughs> because the more information we get like this, the more it becomes about personalities competing with each other, and we're losing the whole spiritual idea. Okay? So now listen. I'd like to explain it in the following way. You see, well, before we get to that, we, we need more, one more information. We need what the Maharal says. So the Maharal says something very, very interesting. What did he do to Chava? He caused her to desire that which she couldn't have. Because Hashem said, don't eat from this fruit. Okay? Now listen very carefully. He put a concept of lack in her. The concept that we're missing something. This is, this is the root of the zuama, of this spiritual toxin. He instilled in her, and also, so to speak, into Adam, right? 
This concept, I'm missing something, I'm missing something. Now we can go back and we can answer the question on the Rambam. If before we ate from the tree of knowledge everything was black and white, how could we even get into the place where we would eat from the tree to begin with? So I would like to suggest that this is the, this is the key step, the transitional step where this notion of black and white started to become blurred. Because now the human personality comes in and we say, ah, I'm missing something. I'm lacking something. And now things start to become blurred and mixed together. And now a situation is created where someone can go against the will of Hashem and eat from the tree of knowledge, which mixes everything together of good and bad. Now all of a sudden, that which was external to me is now become internalized. And so when we talk about the notion of the snake relating physically to Chava, this notion of this marriage, quote-unquote, that took place between them, what it means is, is that the snake put his essence, spiritually speaking, the snake put his essence inside of the human being. In other words, he instilled the human being with this sense of lack, that I'm missing something. Okay, now, with this in mind, we can try to explain this notion of this love triangle. Okay? What does it mean that, what does it mean that the snake saw Adam and Chava physically relating to each other as husband and wife, and then desired, desired Chava. What, is, what does that mean? How can we, in light of what we've just said, how can we explain that? So I'd like to offer the following explanation. As we've said many, 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 many times in these talks, the whole notion of creation, the arc of creation, if you will, is going from incompleteness, this unfinished thing, to the completion of the world. We know that Shabbos, the very first Shabbos of creation, was supposed to be the finishing of the entire world, the, com- the completion of the whole world. That would have been Gan... That, well, it would have been higher than Gan Eden, says Rav Cook, right? That would have been Yerushalayim Shamala, the higher Yerushalayim. But, but basically, it would have been the perfection of the world if we could have finished off the week. Remember, Adam and Chava were created... The Torah says, just a few hours before Shabbos, if they had gotten into Shabbos without doing anything wrong, then that would have been the end of history right there. But in other words, there was still a little bit more work that needed to be done, and then boom, come Shabbos, and that was supposed to be the whole thing. That would have finished everything. Okay. So, so that means there had to be something called lack in the world, in order for that to be finally overcome, in order for perfection, which Shabbos stands for, to take place. The Nachash, the snake, represented that lack. And when it saw Adam and Chava physically relating together, it saw a vision of wholeness, of completeness. And so it went to try to undermine 
that oncoming completeness that was about to enter into the world. And therefore he desired Chava and wanted to knock off Adam, meaning to say, since he's a force countering completion, as we said, the Gamatri of Mashiach is the same as Nachash, it's trying to undermine its other side, right? It desires Chava in order to ruin that completeness. That's why he desired her while he saw Adam and Chava relating together, which represents a complete unity. So now, hopefully that becomes clear. Hopefully, hopefully that answers a lot of questions and that becomes clear. What we've just said, just to review, because that, there is a lot of new information there. What we've just said is the very reason why we could have gone from this black and white, very crystalline, pure view of the world to this place of subjectivity, mixing together this grayness of good and bad all together when we had falsehood and truth initially black and white. How did we get there? Because the Nachash, the snake, put this concept of lack into us. And that undermined our sense of certainty. And then all of a sudden we became prey to something else. What does it mean that the Nachash saw Adam and Chava together and he wanted to marry Chava? It means that where there's unity, where there's completeness, this sense of lack tries to invade and undermine it. It also provides us with this extra initial step, which is very important, which is the whole notion that even before we ate from the tree, there was a step beforehand. Just understanding the actual narrative, according to the Maharal. Okay. So how does Mount Sinai fix all this? It says in the Gomorrah that the Zuama came at Har Sinai and fixed up everything. How? Why? Well, listen to this. The Shalah HaKodesh brings down something very, very amazing. He says, do you know what the Nachash, what this Zuma is? So now we said up until now that it's this sense of lack, a missing something, a missing something. Right? But he says something in a way as or even more dramatic. He said what it did was it put a veil, it put a curtain between heaven and earth. He said before, before, before the whole Zuma entered into the world, Adam and Chava were able to see all of eternity from this world. It was one complete vision. There's this world, and it just keeps on going into eternity. What happened was, when the Zuma, the toxin, the spiritual poison that entered into the world, landed, it separated our consciousness so that we can see this world, but from our normal, natural perspective, we can't see the next world. And so, so this creates a sense of alienation within us. 
spiritual alienation. We think, you know something? Well, all I see is this world. So why should I do this? And why should I not do that? Because all I see is this world anyway. And so this distance, this separation between us and Hashem, that's what the Nachash did. A feeling of um, alienation was put in us in terms of our relationship with God. Because we can't see as clearly His presence in the world. So the Maral says that the way to fix this, the way to fix the damage that was done with the snake in the Garden of Eden is to increase your relationship with God. In other words, if we have a relationship with this snake, so to speak, which puts up these curtains and these barriers to our perception, the way to knock them down is to increase in terms of your knowledge of God. That that's the, that's, that's the medicine. That's why it says that the Torah is the ultimate medicine. That when you learn Torah, you're able to fix a headache, you're able to fix a stomach ache, you're able to fix everything. Why? Because the Torah is that thing which gives you that direct relationship with God. It counteracts the venom of the snake. Learning Torah. It gives you that ability to connect in a very, very, very strong way. Where you see things clearly. It's the exact opposite. So at Har Sinai, everything got fixed up. Because now it makes sense. Why? Because at Har Sinai, we saw the revelation of Hashem like it's never existed before in all of history. It says, we, we saw... We saw words, and we, we heard colors, right? Synesthesia is the English word for it. It was a complete reorientation, or, or, or better put, complete expansion of the senses. It says, heaven came down to earth. That separation, which had been put there initially, all of a sudden went away. We saw eternity again. As a result, this Zuama went away. We were cleansed from it. Now, Rabbeinu Bacha, uh, rather, the Ben Yoyada, uh, this Gomorrah in Shabbos, brings down something very, very interesting. He says, you know, um, he says that there's, uh, I believe it's a Mishnah, maybe it's a Brisa. That if you leave fruit, and this is now talking about, you know, imagine when this is written. I guess maybe this is true today also, but, but um, keep in mind the time it was written, you know, maybe a couple of thousand years ago or more in the Middle East. That if you leave fruit unguarded, you can't do that. You can't leave fruit unguarded. Why? Because a snake may come and bite into one of the fruits and put a poison in the fruit. And then you could eat the fruit and maybe die. Okay? So it was a measure of safety that you just wouldn't do that. Okay? What's the answer? If you cooked the fruit, though, then it's okay. Even if it was left unguarded, seemingly, if you cooked it, it's okay. Because if there was a poison that's put in there, it's cooked out. Now listen to this. 
the Ben Yoyada, that's the Ben Yishchai. The Ben Yoyada brings down that we talk about there was a big fire, a holy fire at Har Sinai. And that this poison from the snake, if regular fire can burn out regular snake poison, the fire of Hashem that took place at Har Sinai can burn out the poison that the snake put us initially at Gan Eden. This holy fire came down and purified all of us. Now listen to this. It says, what about converts? Converts, well, they weren't at Mount Sinai. Okay? So, do they have the Zuamana in them? So the Gomorrah brings down something phenomenal. Now, I had always heard, up until now, and this is going to change it slightly, but in a very beautiful way. In a very beautiful way. I had always heard that the Neshamas of everyone who didn't live at that time, I'm, not, I'm talking about Jews and non-Jews right now, because it says, Hashem says in the Torah, Behold, I'm giving to you all of you who are here and all of you who aren't here. Meaning, the generation that was alive and stood at Har Sinai, and Jews who were later to be born. Their neshamas were at Har Sinai. Now, I had always heard that the neshamas of people who were to convert to Judaism were also at Har Sinai. So the Gomorrah says, that, that you know what was there? Not their neshama, the guardian angel of their neshama. Their mazel was there. And so, and so as a result, now if I'm converting to Judaism, or if I've converted to Judaism, you know, to me that's so special. The idea that Okay, if you tell me I was there, okay, that's also very beautiful, and that's very holy and strong. I was there, so I'm the same as you. That's fine. So, that's great. I hear that. But in a, in a strange way, I think this new teaching, on some level, I'm sure everyone will react to it differently, is in a way even more beautiful. Because the idea that I was being looked after thousands of years before I was born, my guardian angel was there at Mount Sinai, providing for me, and I'm not going to be born for thousands of years, and yet my antidote was provided for me and has been waiting for me. That's awesome. How special is that person? That's, that's, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Okay. So, now, there's an extra, extra thing that Ben Yoyada brings down. Very, very, very interesting. He says, you know what? You know, when fire comes down, it creates a vacuum. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. We have a scientist here, so it's confirming it. Fire creates a vacuum. He says, do you know why we were able to see voices? Because this intense vacuum was created... And it says that because there's oxygen, you can't see voices. But if you were to take all the oxygen away, which happened because a vacuum was created at Har Sinai, you'd be able to see voices. So, you know, you've got to love that. Just because, you know, just the beauty of the Torah is that it's being analyzed every conceivable angle. 
And so here's now a scientific explanation of one of the most spiritual concepts. You know, anyway, so that's in the Ben Yoyada, you can look it up. Now, we're going to go on. And now it comes another, for me, fascinating chapter in the Zuma. You ready for this? The Ron brings down that not just people were at the not just people were were at Harsinai, but animals were at Harsinai as well. Now we return back to the question that we were looking at in another Gomorrah. Can you use the skin of a fish to write to fill it on? Okay? Now if you remember, the Gomorrah left that question up in the air. It said, we're going to have to wait till Eliyahu comes. All right, now we're going to get a new view of what that means, that we have to wait till Eliyahu comes. Maybe you can write it on the skin of the fish, maybe you can't. And they sort of like end by shrugging. And they say, you know what? What's the key issue, the Gomorrah says? Because of the Zuama. Now, you know, on, a, on the most simple level, Zuama also means stench. Or in modern Hebrew, there's a, um, a variation of this word which means pollution. Okay, so it's interesting, you know, how holy even modern Hebrew is, like they're going back to all of these, you know, very laden terms, you know. Anyway, so on the most simple level, you say, well, a fish skin smells and it's not really appropriate to use it for something holy like tefillin. Okay, but then you say, but, but, but this is where that whole explanation falls apart. You say, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to wait till Eliyahu comes. To tell us whether a fish skin smells or not? I mean, can't... <laughs> am I not a good enough judge for that? And then, when you realize that we're not saying smell, but zuma, and then everything we know about that, okay, so now obviously something more is going on. So now listen to this. The Ron says, you ready? The Ron says, do you know why we can't use a fish for this holy purpose? Because fish were not at Harsinai. Because fish, Harsinai is in the desert. Fish live in the water. There were no fish at Harsinai. Fish never got the Zuama out of themselves. That's why we can't use them. And by the way, the halacha is, even though it sounds like it's unresolved in the Gomorrah, the halacha comes down very clearly that you cannot use fish for, for, for writing tefillin on. Okay? The parchment. Now, you're ready for an even more wild question? This comes down, and I have to thank the Chevra Lomde Mishnah for this. Do fish keep mitzvahs? <laughs> Or more specifically, you ready? It's going to get even more specific. More specifically, can you, would you have to kill, according to Jewish law, a piranha for killing a person, for eating a person? Alright, so now based on, based on what we've learned, we can study this and address this topic in, a, in an orderly way. Okay? We know that it says... It says in, uh, in the Mishnah in Bhavakama, 
says, if an ox fatally gores a person, the fine levy to the owner depends on the ox's history. In other words, if he's a habitual killer and he's already been warned and documented and you let him go free and he kills someone, then you've got to put the, the ox to death. Okay? So now, now what about a piranha? So, so what the Machaber here brings down from the Chavra uh, Lomde Mishnah, he brings a Ramban and he says, who is the punishment against when you kill the ox? Is it against the person who owns the ox? Like, you know something, you, you know, an ox was a, remains, but probably especially then, that's a big bit of business, you know? Ox, that's worth a lot of money. That's, 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 that's substantial. Is it a punishment to the owner to kill the ox? Because you didn't take care of your merchandise properly? Or is it a punishment to the ox for behaving in a really, you know, murderous fashion? So the Ramban, um, according to this writer, seems to understand that, you know something? It's against the ox as well. It's also against the ox. Because the ox stood at Harsinai. The ox on some level, even though it's not an intelligent creature, and we're not suggesting that it is, the ox somehow has instilled in its nature, somehow, this notion not to kill. And so if it does kill, it is liable on some level. Now he brings a question on the Rambam. Okay? The Rambam says in discussing the halakha that you'd have to kill an ox, that the same thing applies to a chicken. Right? Remember, again, we know chickens also were at Harsinai, according to this. And they even bring down a case where a chicken committed murder. And Rashi explains because it pecked on the soft spot of a baby's head. Shouldn't, we shouldn't know from it. Okay? So, so, and that chicken was put to death. So the Rambam codifying this mitzvah of which animals can be punished, says it's the same whether it's an ox or any other animal or bird. If it kills a person, it is subject to the death penalty. Okay. Now, the Kli Chemda, one of the great Torah scholars, says, wait a second, let's look at that Rambam one more time about who's punishable by death. Who, what species is it leaving out? Remember, the Rambam is very exact. All right, we're all listening for the word fish now, right? You ready? It is the same whether it is an ox or any other animal or bird. If it kills a person, it is subject to the death penalty. Now, what, what term does it use for animal, any other animal? That sounds like a catch-all. catch-all. That could include a fish, right? But we have to be more precise and look at the Hebrew here now. And it says, Behema Bechaya. Behema Bechaya are not water creatures. Those are very clearly land creatures. So according to this, the piranha gets to walk, so to speak. Gets to swim, right, scot-free. And why? Because it was not a Sinai. Because it didn't have instilled in its nature this basic rectification that got put 
into the world by the snake, this confusion, this veils and everything like that, it has the Zuama still in it. So in a very surprisingly, almost radical way, we apply the spiritual idea in a very, very particular, particular real way. Um, so, so let's, let's just finish up and bring it back home, make it real, um, more real. Uh, There is a lack that we experience, and um, sometimes this lack is, is, is born from something very real. I have to eat to live. If I don't have any food, then, you know, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. When I'm hungry, I, think, I feel something is missing. And so, when I experience that sense of lack, that's a, a normal, natural lack. And it has to be, you know, you eat, God willing, something kosher, and you eat it in a in a in a in a proper way, and and so that's that's a normal ad- addressing of, of a basic need. We have basic needs, we have basic lacks, but we also have um, illusions um, or delusions sometimes of things that are lacking that are, that aren't really lacking. Um, it's important that a person should have ambition. In order to have ambition, you have to have a sense something's missing, and that gives you a drive to accomplish it. So you need that sense of something missing. It keeps you alive, and it's ultimately one of those things, one of those drives that will be um, responsible for, for the rectification of the entire world, the fixing of the whole world. However, there is a category of lack where a person really isn't lacking where I need something that I don't really need. One of the things that I try to do with my children, and I feel like, you know, sometimes you can invest in certain things, right? Like you invest in this company, like green energy, right? That's like a hot stock right now, right? So, so, so maybe that's really going to multiply. You know, so as a parent or whatever it is, you know, you try to correct children in various ways or, try to give them insight in various ways, and maybe some of those things will pay off, and maybe some of those things will horribly backfire. <laughs> um, however, my sense is, my hope is, that this particular investment, <laughs> that I'm going to share with you in a moment, will pay off, I hope. When one of my kids say something like, I need ice cream, or I need that toy, I, I always say, no, you need air to live. <laughs> you need food to live. You would like ice cream, or you would like that toy. Right? And if you don't think that I'm serious about how often I say this to my kids, if one of them says the word, I need, in the wrong way, the other day, Another one of the kids, I don't know which one, not the oldest, maybe the eight-year-old, said to the five-year-old, no, you need air to breathe, (laughs) and you need food to live. (laughs) You know, sometimes, often, or maybe perhaps even all of the time, um, 
we are creating our own realities. And one of the ways we create our own realities is through the language that we use. Because remember, at a very, very deep level, when Hashem created the world, He spoke the world into existence. So there's this very, very powerful connection between speaking and words and creating reality and perception. Because we live within our perceptions. As my father, who was a psychologist for 50 years, said to me very often, in talking to people, you don't deal with reality, you deal with their perception of reality. You have to understand where the person is coming from and how they're viewing the world, then you can talk to them. When we use words like need, I need this, when I don't really need it, the end result, even if it's on a very subtle level, is, I really think I need it. And now I'll even do things in order to get it. Maybe not good things. Because I think I need it. The snake put this sense of lack into us in areas where we don't have lack. That's the point. There are points to us where we're very resilient and very, very strong and very, very... We're never ultimately complete because there's God. Can't be complete without God. But we're a lot stronger in many, many, many areas than we give ourselves credit for. And yet, what chips away at that, eats away at it, it eats away at it, it eats away at it. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And the answer is you have to look at it. Maybe you do need Maybe the Maybe... Maybe it is an authentic desire because we do have needs. You have to look at it. Talk to people about it. This, uh, this thing I have. Is it real? Is it not real? Should I invest in it? Look into it. Listen carefully to the words that you use. Especially when you use the word need. And then just stop and allow yourself to explore what you just said about the way you see the world. And it may create a window in which you'll be able to do a lot of fixing. Now, I want to, I want to end on one last thought. You know, if you could bring me the, um, the black art scroll sitter, I want to show you something. I saw this, I got very, very excited. We're going we're gonna to end with this. This concept of the Zuhama, it, 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 um, is that a Hebrew word or English? Well, it's, um, it's, I, the way it's spelled is in Aramaic. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's entered into modern Hebrew. So it is, it is a Hebrew word, but initially I, I, I don't know the answer. Um, I will tell you one thing, though, something that I noticed about this word. I looked up the gematria of it. It's 59, which is very interesting, because we all know that there's a concept of batul b'shishim, that when you get to the level of the number of 60, there's a purification that takes place. 
If you, if you look at the letter which 60 corresponds to, it's the letter Samach, which is a complete circle. In other words, when you have 60, like in, um, in Kashrus, if you have something, uh, Trefa or Nevela, which is abbreviated as Tes Nun, which is the Gematria 59, which is the same Gematria as the Zuoma, is also 59. In Kashrus, if you have if you have a little piece of non-kosher food, but you have 60 times its volume with it, then that non-kosher food doesn't affect the other food. So 60, but you have to remove the non-kosher food. You can't say, ah, I have 60 against the pork, now I can eat the pork. If the pork is recognizable, you have to take out the pork. But the pork doesn't ruin the other food, because you had 60 against it. 60 represents a level of purification. And so it makes sense that it corresponds to the letter Samach, which is a circle, which means it's the complete vision of God, if you will. Because you understand that you're completely surrounded, that God is everywhere. So that counteracts this notion of lack. Because 59, you can see even in the gematria of the word itself, in the halacha, 59 is still, it, it, it tells you that there's lack until salvation comes. Because it goes all the way to 59. It says when the snake had its arms and legs cut off, its scream was heard from one end of the world to the other. Okay, it completely fills it. It's on the level of 59, but we have 60. Thank God we have 60. Remember, when we were at Harsinai, when we received the Torah at Sinai, we made a circle around the mountain. This is the level of Samach, 60, purification against the Zuama. Okay? Okay. Now listen to this. You say, well, what about me today? And by the way, we, we just have to throw in, very important, that when we, when we did the Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf, the Zuama returned. Okay? So... What does that mean? So just very quickly, just based on my current level of understanding, I would say the following. Remember we said in the name of the Shalah that one of the damages that the snake did was to put a veil, a curtain, which blocked our view of eternity. There was a separation there. What was the whole idea of the sin of the golden calf? We felt on some level that we needed an intermediary to reach Hashem. That concept of needing an intermediary is like a blockage. It's like that's a curtain again. In other words, we put the curtain back up with the Chete Egel. Okay? So, now you say, well, what about me today? Now, the great holiday of Shavuos is coming up, receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. And we know that we're counting every single day. We're counting every, every single day to get back to Har Sinai. To receive the Torah in purity. Now I'm going to read you a line. When I saw this, it knocked my socks off. Because the sitter, the sitter, why are we davening the same prayers every single day? Because every single word there, you know. The Kutzka Rebbe says something very beautiful. He says, um, it says in the Shema, Olive Avecha. Put these words, Al means on, on top of. Put these words, meaning the oneness of God, the words of the Torah, put these words, on your heart. So the Katska Rebbe asks, 
Why doesn't it say, put these words in your heart? So he says something very heartbreaking, actually. But ultimately, beautiful. He says, he says, do you think that your heart is open all the time? That you can put these words in your heart? He says, most, most of the time a person's heart is actually closed. He says, so you put these words on your heart so that when the moment comes that your heart does open, the words are there and they're going to fall in. Okay? So, we read the Siddur over and over again. And, uh, and we're piling all these words on top of our heart. But every once in a while, we'll read the Siddur in such a way, and we'll go, oh, look, oh. And then they drop in. Now, here's a word that I've read a lot of times. Didn't know what it meant. Didn't know what it was. And... Um, and the word is Mizumasam. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? I hope it's better after this whole talk. Okay? Let me give you the context, okay? This is on page 284. It's in the Rabona Sholem. One, two, three, four, five. Five lines down, fourth to last word on the line. Okay, I'm going to read to you. Now remember, what did we say? This level of spiritual impurity was taken away from us where? When? At Harsina. What are we doing right now? We're counting. Right now, all of us are counting to receive the Torah at Harsina. Right? Shavuos is coming. Here's a prayer that we say after we're counting. Rabboni Shalom, Master of the Universe. You commanded us through Moshe, your servant, to count the Omer count in order to cleanse us from our incrustations of evil. Okay? And from our contaminations, as you have written in your Torah, you are to count from the morrow of the rest day, from the day you brought the Omer offering that is waived. There are to be seven complete weeks, until the morrow of the seventh week you are to count fifty days, so that the souls of your people be cleansed of their Zuma. That's what it says right here. So that the souls of your people Israel be cleansed of their contamination. It's using that very same word. In other words, this drama is still playing itself out today. Right now. We're still in the middle. It's playing out right now. It's not over. It's not like, okay, it happened in the Garden of Eden and then we got a, we got a temporary salvation at Harsinai and now everything went out the window and, you know, I'm just all alone and this is all kind of, I don't even know what it is. Just, just uh, the sun rises and I get out of bed and that's just what it is. It's not what it is. We're still in the middle of this very drama. It's going on right now. Shem should bless us that we should do the fixing that we need to do. We should understand that this idea that there's a that there's a separation between us and all of eternity, between us and God, is a fiction. We should understand that we do have needs, but also this concept of lack that's been put into us is also a fiction. We should uproot these things and thereby cleanse ourselves from these false ideas that have been instilled in us. 
And we should be cleansed of the Zuhama. And that we should be able to receive the Torah in its full completeness. Finally, 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 finally. Yeah. Now I understand everything.